Amen. Most of you know, or many of you know, that it's been a wedding weekend here at PBC. Uh, yesterday, we celebrated the, the marriage of two PBC members, Jeremy and Channing Collins. And unfortunately, they didn't make time to be here for church this morning. Um, after over a, a decade of ministry, it's, it's been my joy to officiate many weddings. Every now and then I'll get asked to perform a wedding that I, I have to decline because of time constraints or, or some other reason. But I was thinking uh, last week about all the relationships that I've never been asked to perform a ceremony for. Nobody has ever called me and said, Pastor, could you please perform a ceremony for me. I just got a new dog, and I want to formalize the, the owner-pet relationship. Uh, nobody has asked me to host a ceremony for uh, an employer and the employee as they begin a new working relationship together. Uh, no boyfriend has ever asked me to uh, have a ceremony for him and his girlfriend right after they define the relationship. Certainly no one has ever asked me or wanted me to be present when a, a man proposes to his girlfriend to formalize the fiancé relationship. Uh, I've never been asked by an expectant mother to be there in the hospital room to have a ceremony to welcome the new child into the world and, and solemnize the relationship between mother and father and child. No one's asked me for a ceremony about best friends the reason for that is because we all know instinctively that there's a difference, there's a distinction between marriage and every other relationship. We know that there's something different about this relationship. I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the passage that was read earlier. This is our final week of a mini-series on five divine distinctions from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Understanding these distinctions is, is crucial to building a biblical worldview, to have a, a biblical way of seeing these five distinctions are crucial building blocks. So we've talked about the distinction between the creator and the creation, between humanity and the rest of creation, between male and female, between life and death. Today, we'll conclude by looking at the distinction between marriage and every other human relationship. If you take away anything from today's sermon, I want you to understand that, that as Christians, we believe true marriage is the covenantal union between one man and one woman, and it's distinct from every other human relationship. True marriage is the covenantal union between one man and one woman, and it's distinct from every other human relationship. That is not a popular sentence, but it's what Christians believe. It's what we believe at PBC. And if you're in the room this morning and you don't like that sentence, you don't agree with that sentence, perhaps it feels harsh or unfair or unloving to you, I hope to show you why Christians do believe this and why we must believe this. If you're in this room and you're not certain what you believe, I hope that you'll at least understand the Christian perspective. I want to highlight for you this morning 
Um, Genesis 2.24, let's read that together, and then we're going to go through this, this account that was read in full earlier, and we're going to ask the two questions we've been asking over the last few weeks. What does this mean, and why does it matter? Look at Genesis 2.24. After telling the story of Adam and Eve coming together in what we now call marriage, Moses, who's writing the book of Genesis, says, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What, is this, what does this mean? I want to give you five observations that demonstrate why marriage is distinct from every other human relationship. Five observations from our text this morning. Number one, we were made for community. If you look at verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So if you read the first two chapters of Genesis, seven times God says his creation was good. But here, for the first time, before Adam and Eve sin, God looks at his creation and he says, Something is not good. Just as God eternally exists in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, His image bearers, humanity, are created to exist in community too. So we were made for community. Now, if, if this story was all that we had, we might conclude then that the community of marriage is God's intent for every person, that singleness is bad and marriage is good. Now, marriage, rightly understood, marriage is good. Proverbs 18, says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Jeremy Collins obtained favor from the Lord yesterday when he took as his bride Channing. That's a good thing. Marriage, rightly understood, is good. But Singleness, rightly understood, is also good. So um, talking about the fact that he is or was single, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. In, in context, he's saying single, like I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So, so here's what Paul is saying. There are different gifts. Some have been given the gift of marriage, and some have been given the gift of singleness. Okay, so here's the big burning question. Which gift do I have? Which gift do I have? So if you've, let's do a quick experiment. So pay attention. If you're sleeping now, wake up. Someone here is sleeping. Give them a little friendly elbow. Wake them up. If you have never been married, you're divorced, and you haven't remarried, or you're a widow or a widower, raise your hand. So in other words, you're currently single. Okay, raise your hand. Is that everybody? Are we all? Maybe we just don't like raising our hands when the pastor tells us to. That's okay. All right, so those of you that raise your hand, congratulations, you currently have the gift of singleness. Now, everybody else, everybody else, 
if you didn't raise your hand, you either weren't paying attention, you didn't understand it, you don't like raising your hand, or you have the gift of marriage, okay? Everybody else, you have the gift of marriage. So to have the gift of singleness means you are currently single. Now, we're not going to talk today about how to use the gift of singleness well. If you're single as a young person, you're not married yet, or, or you're a widow or a widower, or you've been divorced and not remarried, you currently have the gift of singleness. Paul says it is a gift, just a, just a quick summary. It's meant to be used for the kingdom and not for you. That's what your singleness is for. If you want to read more about it, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this afternoon and, and study it. But, but for now, I just want you to understand that when Genesis 2.18 says, it's not good for man to be alone, it doesn't mean that every person is supposed to be married. Okay? At its most basic level, it means that whether you're married or single, you were not made to be alone. All of us, every single human was made for community. Made for this. Number two, marriage. Marriage is a divine community. By, by calling marriage a divine community, what we're saying is that this is God's idea. This is not a man-made community. It's not a modern community. This is a divine community that God himself created to give Adam and Eve this relationship, this life together. Notice it is God in the text this morning who, who observes the problem of man without community. He's the one that says it's not good for man to be alone. Adam doesn't say, hey God, there's, there's a problem here. I'm all by myself. Adam doesn't know there's a problem. Like most men, he's blissfully ignorant. I'm surprised no lady said amen there. I'm surprised my wife didn't say amen. Anyway, that's another story. Adam doesn't notice the problem. God sees the problem. God says it's not good, and it is God who creates the prescription for the problem. So look at verse 22. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So, so that's, that's why when, when the Pharisees asked Jesus about his views on divorce, he, he went back to the beginning. We've talked about this on a few Sunday nights. In, in Mark 10, Jesus quotes this passage when he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So, so Jesus himself goes back to Genesis 2, and he says a marriage, a, a true marriage, is a divine community. God is the one that joined them together. Jesus' words in Mark 10 and Moses' words in Genesis 2 the Spirit's words to all of us, are more than just a charge to husbands and wives to fight for their marriages. This is a word for all of us to fight for the truth about what marriage is. Okay, so let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Imagine uh, you go to the doctor, and he says, you need such and such a prescription. 
And so he writes the order for the prescription, and, and you use, like I do, one of those mail-order pharmacies. And so it goes to the mail-order pharmacy, some lab somewhere gets your prescription together, and it comes in the mail, and the mailman's delivering your mail one day, and he, he looks at that prescription. And let's say he's a nosy mailman, so he opens up the package, you know, and he says, you know, I don't think this is quite right. So I'm going to, you know, this, these contents, these ingredients are a little bit too exclusive. They're a little bit too narrow. So I'm going to add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that, put it back in the bottle and give it to you. Voila, there's your prescription. Is that right? Absolutely not. You, you would have every right to be angry at your mailman, right? Now, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen to me. We are the mailmen. God writes the prescription, here's what marriage is. We do not have the right or the authority to tamper with it. This is not our prescription. God is the pharmacist. He knows what we need. We're just delivering the mail. So we have no authority, no right to change the institution of marriage, no matter what our culture might say. It is God's idea. It's a divine community and in God's wisdom, he determined, number three, that marriage should be a complementary community. Now, I'm not talking about compliments with an I. Um, we're not talking about husbands and wives complimenting each other, although that's a good idea. Husbands, if you haven't complimented your wife lately, make yourself a note beside your sermon notes. Maybe I'll compliment her later. That one's free, just for you. We're talking about complement, okay? So Merriam-Webster defines complement as something that, that fills up, completes, or makes better or perfect, or one of two mutually completing parts, okay? So by saying marriage is complementary, we're saying that God designed marriage to be a union that completes by bringing together two different yet mutually completing persons, okay? So what sort of marriage is a complementary marriage? Is it two people from different backgrounds or two people with different personality types or two people with different love languages or two people with different skill sets? We don't have to guess. The Bible tells us it's two people with different genders, that's what the text says. Look at verse 23. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. They're, they're equal, bone of bones, flesh of flesh, and yet they're different, man, woman. God's design is that marriage be a complementary union, a, a union between one man and one woman. Now, if you're listening and you just struggle with this stuff and you struggle why we need to talk about this or why we need to care about this or why any of this matters, let's just, let's just preach the gospel. Let's not worry about this stuff. Why does this matter? And some might say, well, this is arbitrary. You know, Why does God say it has to be a man and a woman? It is arbitrary if men and women are interchangeable, but we're not. We're not interchangeable. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote a fantastic little book called Men and Women in the Church, 
and he gives a really helpful illustration. He says, imagine you have two identical basketballs. Two identical basketballs. One of them is labeled for indoor use. I don't know why you would play basketball inside, but that's another story. And the other one is labeled outside use. That's arbitrary, isn't it? Why did you choose one and not the other? They're exactly the same. Same shape, same size, same color. They're both basketballs. One is indoor, one is outdoor. A lot of people think that's what complementarianism, teaching that there's a difference between male and female, that's a lot what a lot of people think we mean, that men and women are, we're exactly the same. We're not different at all. God just determined that, that they should be different, and so we're just kind of following these arbitrary rules. But what if you had a basketball, and you tried to use it for the game of football? And you had a football that you tried to use for the game of basketball. Could you do it? Yeah, you could probably do it. But over time the game would begin to change because there's something about the form of a football that's designed for the game of football and something about the, the form of a basketball that's designed for the game of basketball. So Kevin DeYoung says the rules for each ball are not arbitrary. They're, they're rooted in the different structure, shape, and purpose of each ball. The rules are rooted in nature. So here's the point. Men and women, we are equal image bearers of God, and yet we have got to be, as Christians, the people that can and will say, we are different. And whatever rules God's, words, God's word has about the differences between men and women are not arbitrary. They're, they're rooted in nature. They're rooted in who we are. And there's nowhere where that's more evident then in the fact that, number four, marriage is a reproducing community. Marriage is a reproducing community. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Moses, the author of Genesis, offers an editorial comment in verse 24. And he says that because of what God did with Adam and Eve in the garden, because he brought man and woman together, therefore, because of that, men leave their mom and dad, move out of the basement, get rid of the Star Wars sheets, and they cling to a wife. And the two of them become one flesh. So when Moses says one flesh, he's, he's talking about the, the unity that man and woman have together as, as now, as I told Jeremy and Channing yesterday, a single man and a single woman died yesterday, but out of that death came a new life, husband and wife together, a new family, one flesh. That's part of what Moses means, but Moses also, by talking about one flesh, he's referring to the, the physical union that man and woman have together in marriage which is why verse 25 says that they were naked and unashamed. Now, we have children present, so I'm going to be as G-rated as I can and try to talk about this, but de defining marriage as the union between one man and one woman is not 
arbitrary because this is the only type of union that can naturally reproduce children. Okay? So on March 27th, 2013, the Supreme Court uh, heard oral arguments for the Windsor case. Uh, that case would end up being a, a major domino to fall that would lead to the inevitable uh, legalization of so-called same-sex marriage in the United States of America. The day before, all the media outlets were talking about this case, and uh, CNN hosted a discussion between Piers Mor Pierce Morgan and Ryan T. Anderson. Uh, Ryan Anderson is um, a former research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's a, a well-known conservative author, wrote a book about um, uh, w w defining marriage, also had a book recently that was banned from Amazon for what he said about gender. He was asked seven or eight years ago to talk with Pierce Morgan about the nature of marriage. Now, from the outset, and we're going to link to the, this video on our blog this week if you're interested in watching it. But from the outset, it was hard to even call this a, a discussion because Pierce uh, would interrupt Anderson over and over again. And in fact, he was at a table on a stage with another woman that shared his views. And down in the audience, like, like one of the, the peons that wasn't quite worthy to, to come up with us, was Ryan Anderson. And he was interviewed from the audience, talked down to literally throughout the, the interview. When Ryan was given a chance to speak, he said this, he said that marriage should be between a man and a woman because, quote, the act that unites a man and a woman is the same act that creates new life, end quote. The act that unites a man and a woman is the same act that creates a new life. That's what we're saying about marriage. Marriage is unique from every other human relationship because the one flesh union between a man and a woman, the ultimate expression of marital unity and intimacy is the act that creates new life. Wait a minute. Somebody's thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that couples that can't or don't have children aren't really married? No. No. Not at all. But we are saying one of the reasons why true marriage can only be between a man and a woman is that only a man and a woman can naturally bring about children through their union. Let me give you an example. Consider the, uh, the St. Peter's Peacocks. Anybody heard of the St. Peter's Peacocks? They're a Division I college baseball team from Jersey City. They have all the right equipment that any baseball team should have. They've got gloves, bats, balls, helmets, cleats, uniforms, all the stuff. They take the field night after night, and they play a game called baseball. But in 2017, they finished the season 0-38. It's pretty rare to find a baseball team to finish a season and not win a single game. This is a short season, 38 games. But even at 38 games, it's really rare. I had to look at, on Google for a while to find somebody. But that's it. It's the St. Peter's Peacocks. They finished the season 0-38. Here's the question. Are they a real baseball team? Even if they never win a game? Yes. Because it's not winning a game that makes you a baseball team. It's, it's coming together with the right players and the right equipment, with a commitment to play the game. 
as delicately as I can, so too with marriage. Having a baby doesn't make you married any more than winning a game makes you a baseball team. True marriage is the coming together of the right persons with the right equipment, with a commitment to the relationship. This is why for centuries, many traditions have considered the, the one flesh act that what consummates a marriage. And a marriage that never had a one flesh union would be a marriage that would, could be annulled. So marriage is a reproductive community because the act that unites a man and a woman is the same act that creates new life. Five, uh, number five, fifth observation. Marriage is an exclusive community. Marriage is an, is an exclusive community. Look at verse 24 again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When a husband takes a wife, he does not bring mom and dad with him. And all the ladies once again say amen. <laughs> this is an exclusive community by design. It, listen, remember, this is at the very beginning. At this point, there are two humans on the planet. God's design, <coughs> his command, to add, <coughs> excuse me, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Remember that? If God really wants to help them get a jump start in doing that, all he needs to do is give Adam a few extra wives. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't. He gives her, he gives him one woman. Why? Because marriage in itself is designed to be an exclusive Community, exclusive community, which is why in our traditional wedding vows we say forsaking all others. So true marriage is the covenantal union between one man and one woman, and it is distinct from every other human relationship. That's what this means. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Let me give you three reasons why standing up for true marriage is worth it. Three reasons why standing up for true marriage is worth it. The, number one, it's a human flourishing issue. When we talk about human flourishing, we're talking about the, the set of cultural conditions that allow humanity to thrive in a culture. We were talking um, this morning in my apologetic Sunday school class about Hinduism in India and the fact that the doctrine of karma actually discourages you from stepping outside your caste to help someone that's poor and, and hurting and diseased. They, these people are often called Dalits or untouchables. And, and they're supposed to be left alone so that they can pay for all their bad sins and eventually reincarnate and come into a better existence. Those are conditions that don't lead to human flourishing. Even though we, we understand, listen, we're never going to build a Christian utopia on this planet. That's not our goal. It's not our goal in this country. But we should care about laws and culture doing what best leads to human flourishing, human well-being, human health, human ha happiness. Why? Because humans are made in the image of God. <clears throat> true marriage, true marriage as we've defined it today, covenantal union between one man and one woman leads to human flourishing. Everything that undermines true marriage hinders human flourishing. 
You might be thinking, well, why? Why, why not just live and let live? Listen, uh, the Obergefell decision was years ago. We're well past that. Let's forget about it. Let's just move on. Let's not care about that. Let's not worry about that. John Stone Street says, um, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. So who are the most common victims of any bad ideas? The most common victims of bad ideas are always the most vulnerable people there are. The most common victims of the bad ideas about marriage are children. And to be clear, they're not the only victims of the ba any bad ideas about marriage, but they're the most common. So think with me for just a moment about why undermining true marriage hurts the least of these around us. Think about divorce. Divorce often hurts children. Now, there are a few instances when divorce is biblically permissible. I believe in cases like adultery, abandonment, and abuse. They all break the marriage covenant. But in, in the 1970s, uh, then-California Governor Ronald Reagan signed the nation's first no-fault divorce law, successfully redefining marriage from a covenant to a, to a contract. You, you no longer had to argue after 1970 when you were trying to get a divorce that your spouse had broken the covenant. Marriage was redefined long before Obergefell in the United States when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. Let me ask you, does same-sex marriage, so-called, does it hurt children? I think the way, that, the way you answer that question depends on if you think there's a difference between men and women. If men and women are interchangeable, if we're not different, then you could probably say it doesn't matter, it doesn't hurt children. But if men and women are different, then that means that there's a difference between fathering and mothering, right? L listen, uh, Ryan Anderson has also said there's really no such thing as parenting in the generic. There's mothering and there's fathering. They're, they're different things. Listen, my kids almost never want me to cuddle with them. They come to me when they want to wrestle and fight. And they almost never go to Holly with a pile driver, you know. They, that's, that's what they say for me. So they fight with dad. We wrestle. We have fun together. We roughhouse. Holly's the, the cuddler. Now, now, not every home is exactly like that, but it does show there is a difference between mothering and fathering. When my kids fall and scrape their knee, I'm the first one to tell them, get up, you're fine. And Holly's the first one to put on the Band-Aid correctly. Why? Because there's a difference between mothering and fathering. Now, here's how this relates to so-called same-sex marriage in our country. We have effectively created a cultural institution where mothering and fathering are optional. Where you can have little boys and girls grow up and maybe they'll have two moms or maybe they'll have two dads, but maybe they won't have both. I just want to stop for a second. I shared on Sunday night a story of a, a man I met in Colombia when we were adopting Ezekiel. And after talking with him for a while, I learned that he was um, in a same-sex marriage with his partner, and they were adopting 
two children from Colombia. And um, I, I, I got to know this man and talked to, with him for, for quite a while and I got to hear his story. And there were, in many ways, it was quite tragic. I just want you to know that even though we would say this as an institution hurts children, we shouldn't say that there's nothing to celebrate there. It is good for children to be taken out of poverty, to be taken out of orphanages, to be taken in a home, to be loved. There are things to celebrate even in that. And yet at the same time, we must clearly say this is a sin and it violates the law of God. Now listen, it is hard to do both of those things at the same time and do them well. Incredibly hard. And yet God's people must be the people that love all image bearers even when we call out their sin. Another way that redefining marriage hurts kids is, is polygamy. Just this month, an article in Harvard Law Today called for the legal recognition of polyamorous relationships in the United States. Many believe this will be the next shoe to drop in redefining marriage in the United States. But listen, uh, polygamy, polyamory hurt children. It hurts children. I, I shared, shared this at a table talk a, a, a few months ago. Um, polygamy is linked to higher rates of domestic violence, child abuse, poverty, and more. And some people will say, well, the, the Bible supports polygamy. No, it does not. Not once. I challenge you to show me one place where the scripture says this is good. What the Bible does is show you, here's what happens when you violate God's design. You have to go no further than the, the story of Joseph and all the chaos that happened in that household to see the effects of polygamy on children. I, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. Christians, if you, if you care about the least of these, if you care about human flourishing, you should care about marriage. You should care about true marriage. Number two, this is a holiness issue. You should care about true marriage because it's a holiness issue. Uh, imagine a, a good shepherd who's building a fence around a large and a beautiful pasture for his sheep. Inside the fence, there, there's room to run. There's beautiful big trees where the sheep can find shade. There's a nice, cool stream providing pure, clean drinking water for the sheep. There's, there's life inside the fence. Outside the fence are many dangers. There's various poisonous plants that could kill or immobilize a sheep. There's a cliff from which sheep have been known to plunge to their deaths. There's a stagnant pool filled with bacteria and parasites. There's a, a thicket that's been known to trap the sheep in the thick undergrowth and thorns. There are countless predators that would happily eat lamb for lunch. There's death outside the fence. Uh, one day, a sheep comes along, and he decides that the fence is limiting his freedom. The fence doesn't allow him to be who he really is. 
The fence doesn't allow her self-expression. And so the sheep tears down the fence. Listen, brother, sister, friend, holiness is like a fence. Holiness, as God presents it to us in his word, tells us, tells us what obedience looks like. It, it tells us where life is found. It protects us from death. I want you to think of God's design for marriage, as we've talked about this morning, as, as one of the panels in the fence called holiness. It's, it's one of the panels in that fence. And if we tear that thing down, thinking that we will bring life, we will find on the other side of that fence only death and destruction. God is not a cosmic killjoy trying to take away your fun. He's a loving, good shepherd. And whatever he prohibits is always and only for your good. He loves you. He loves you. He's a good shepherd. The Bible is clear that there is only, only one proper outlet for sexual activity. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. Sexual intimacy is honorable and undefiled in only one place. When it's found within God's design for marriage, within the fence, outside of God's design for marriage, it will only incur the holy judgment of God. Listen to me, whether you're 10 or 75, it does not matter. There is only one place where this gift is rightly received, and that is within the marriage bed as God defines marriage. Listen to me, it might feel loving to you to tear down some of the fence panels but it's not. You're cutting people off from life. With God's help, we will be a church that will, until Jesus tarries, faithfully and clearly and consistently and compassionately say the truth about marriage and sexuality. We've got to be. To, to, to do anything else is the height of arrogance and rebellion. So Christian in the room, who will you believe? Most of what I've said in this sermon this morning, the culture would say is hateful, bigoted, and on the wrong side of history. I'm okay with that, not because I don't love the culture outside of here, but because I, I, with God's help, I love my Lord more. Here's the bad news for everybody hearing me right now. Every single one of us has already wandered outside the fence. Isaiah the prophet says this in chapter 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I share with you on Sunday night, Al Mohler said there is no one beyond the age of puberty, who is not a sexual sinner. Every single one of us hearing my voice 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all, like sheep, knocked down that fence panel and gone astray. True marriage is a holiness issue. Is there any hope for sheep that wander outside the fence? Yes. A thousand times yes. Third application from our text this morning is that this is a marriage rightly defined is a gospel issue. Back to Isaiah 53, the text says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's the him? Isaiah is saying, all of us, every single one of us, like sheep, we've wandered outside the fence of holiness, of God's design for his people. All of us have wandered outside the fence. God is going to lay our iniquity on someone. Who? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ himself, would become like one of his sheep. And he would lay down his life for those sheep. And he would bear the weight of their iniquity. Christ himself would come into the sheep bin. And he would chase after sheep. And he would be punished for all the ways that we have wandered outside of the fence of God's holiness. This is what Christians call the gospel. The good news that God loved the world so much, he sent his son to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death and, and rise from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have in him life, not by working for it, not by trying hard enough, not by being a good person, coming to church enough, putting enough money in the offering basket, simply by trusting in the finished work of Jesus that is the good news. So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, we plead with you. We gladly invite you to trust him today. This is the best news you've ever heard in your entire life. That there would be a one perfectly holy who would choose to step into this world filled with sinners, filled with people like you and me and willingly suffer the penalty that we deserve and rise from the dead. That is glorious good news. But here's the deal. That good news is what marriage was pointing to all along. At the very beginning, in Genesis 2, when God brings Eve to Adam... He is not only thinking about Adam and Eve. You know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about this gospel I just shared with you. He's thinking about you. This whole relationship that is so precious and so important and so beautiful and worth fighting for, it is pointing to a better relationship, a, a bigger relationship, a glorious eternal relationship that Christ has with his church. Uh, listen to Ephesians 5. 
Once again, this same text is quoted again. Therefore, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands in the room, wives in the room, if you have been given the gift of marriage, you have been given a responsibility to as best as you are able with the Spirit's help image this good news in your marriage. Husbands, this is, if you read Ephesians 5, it's a call for you to die. How did Jesus show love to his church? By dying for her. Now, this is the little things, and it's the big things, and it's everything in between. It's that moment at, at 10.30 p.m. when you're already in bed and you're almost asleep and your wife says, where's my water bottle? Would you mind getting it for me, dearie? She didn't say dearie, but the rest of it's true. <laughs> and you in that moment can choose to live for yourself or die to yourself. And by the way, there are ways to go and get the water bottle and still be a jerk, and you didn't die to yourself at all because you stopped the whole way there and let her know how much you sacrificed for her. Husbands, you have a great calling, a high and holy and glorious calling from an amazing God who says, show her what I love like. Oh, my goodness. And wives, to follow husband, to, to submit to your husband as you follow Christ, to respect him as the church follows after Jesus. What a glorious, glorious calling. Those of us in this room that are married, we have a role to play. And as we do this well, listen, we, we show people, we point people to something even better and bigger than our marriages. We point to Christ. Do you see Church, why we can't redefine this without redefining the gospel to which it's pointing? You can't change the sign. It's not your sign. It's God's. And he says, I want it to point to this. So be faithful and do that. So what should you take away from what you've heard here this morning? I would plead with you, love those outside the fence. Love those outside the fence. The people that right now are, are sinning sexually. People right now that are standing up for, fighting for, activating for institutions that you believe rightly to be sinful. Love them. Why? Because they're captives. They're not combatants. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul says. First and foremost, I want you to hear this. First and foremost, what they need, what the, 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 the homosexual needs, what the LGBTQ plus community needs, what the activists need, what the politicians need, first and foremost is not to agree with us on this, but to believe the gospel. They need the good news, and we have that, so let's love them. And listen, your love is one of the best selling points for the gospel. Love them. If you've ever wandered outside the fence, 
or if you're currently wandering outside the fence, come home. Come home. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we plead with you again. We invite you again to repent and believe, to turn from trusting in you and trust him. Trust him. If you're a Christian and you've wandered outside the fence, I tell you this, I tell you this regularly. No matter how far you've wandered with Jesus, it's always just one step back. I love that about my Jesus. Now, if you've wandered and you've hurt other people in your life, you may have a lot of work to do to rebuild trust, to restore broken relationships. Maybe even a husband and a wife need to do that in this room today. But with Jesus, it's one step back. It's the hardest step, but it's one step. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're in the fence right now, you're, you're using your sexuality faithfully with holiness. You're following Jesus in this area. Then fight to stay there. Singles, fight to be faithful. Married people, fight to be faithful. And listen, for all of us, this is going to take strength. This is going to take courage because everything just about we've said in this room today would embarrass us if it was on the evening news tonight. Just a little bit if we're honest. Oh going to take courage. I think we have a great example of courage to look to in something our brother John prayed about earlier in the service. The Gospel Coalition reported last week that in early July, a group of Afghan pastors and church leaders made a difficult decision. They decided to formally register their faith with the Afghanistan government. This was knowing full well that the Taliban takeover was inevitable. This was a, a, an act that required great courage because even before the Taliban takeover, it was illegal to convert to Christianity in Afghanistan. And yet these pastors in Afghanistan, our brothers said, listen, we must do this. Why? So that our children, so that our grandchildren can one day, we, we hope, we pray, identify with Jesus in public, even if this is signing our death certificate. Maybe it will be life for our children. Since that takeover, at least one pastor in Afghanistan reported receiving a letter from the Taliban, we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. Two days ago, Christianity Today reported that three Christian families were taken by the Taliban and their houses were burned. Praise God that we are not enduring what they are enduring there. That day may come here. Maybe it won't. Doesn't really matter. Our responsibility is to be faithful in small things today. And the same promise given to the early church, given to the Afghan pastors, is given to us. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. And on the other side of your faithfulness awaits for you, Christian, a marriage supper with the Lamb of God filled with the best party you have ever imagined where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sin, 
and you will be with him forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we praise you for the good news of the glorious gospel. We thank you for the gift of marriage that points to this good news. And we pray now for every marriage in this room that we would be by your strength and for your glory faithful. Help us, we pray, to walk worthy of the gospel to which we have been called, to cling to the cross, to cling to each other, to not give up, to not lose heart, to not lack faith and courage, even when we may find ourselves standing against the winds of culture. May we be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand and sing with me.